You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. As pretty much everyone listening to this podcast knows, mallards are the most abundant duck species worldwide, and they are perhaps the single most heavily studied wild bird, if not animal, in the world. As was previously quoted in a Ducks Unlimited magazine article, we know more about mallards here in North America than some countries know about their own people. Yet, despite all of that intensive study, every now and then mallards continue to yield surprising discoveries. And this episode and the next two episodes that follow will eventually reveal one of those surprising discoveries. Today, as we get into this episode, we're going to start talking about genetics, hybridization. We're going to talk about how mallards hybridize with so many other different species. We're going to eventually get to a discussion about eastern mallards, black ducks, game farm releases in eastern U.S. and what that kind of has to do with this overall conversation of, uh, of eastern mallard population dynamics. And then, of course, we're going to couch all of this in terms of what it means for conservation. Now, to be clear, I'm not a geneticist, and I'm probably going to be in over my head really quick as we get into this conversation. But fortunately, we have a couple of people joining us here on this show. The first, and the person that we might consider our superstar guest on this particular topic, is Dr. Phil Lebretsky, Assistant Professor at the University of Texas, El Paso. Phil, welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast. Hey, Mike. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this. And joining Phil and joining me on this on this episode is a previous guest of the podcast, our very own chief scientist, Dr. Tom Mormon. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mike. Glad to be here. Uh, looking forward to hearing what uh, Phil has to say because I'm not a genetics expert either. That's okay. Um, I, I needed some backup on this, and and I know this is an area that you're interested in, and so you were the logical choice for me. The first thing we want to do here, uh, Tom, you've been introduced to the to the audience on previous episodes, so we won't ask you to go through that again. But I do want to give Phil an opportunity to introduce himself to to our listeners, as well as kind of just describe his area of expertise and what he does at the University of Texas El Paso. Phil? Yeah, Mike, thanks for that. Um, so I'll, I'll start it even earlier. Uh, before my career, I actually came to the to the U.S. Uh, from Russia. I was born in Russia. My family immigrated to Los Angeles, California, because we got had some some friends, our family there. And, um, and I can't remember much until my dad actually had enough money to buy himself an over and under 12 gauge. And at that point, we just, we, he, he started taking us, uh, started taking me hunting. We did dove, duck. Once I started doing duck hunting, well, that's about all I, I did throughout my time. And, uh, lo and behold, and, the uh, so I was like, okay, I'm going to be a waterfowl biologist, but you know, this movie Jurassic Park came out and I said, no, wait, what would be better is if I, if I actually created velociraptors. So that led me down the path of genetics. And so I went up to the University of California, Davis, where I did my uh, uh, degree in genetics. And genetics is fun. 
Uh, for me, I really like it. Uh, however, pure genetics, where you're, you're studying Drosophila and other such things, uh, model organisms, so to speak, it's not so much fun to talk about. So I got into wildlife conservation, my, my, my main passion, um, and uh, first starting in fisheries, doing some captive breeding uh, work, uh, using genetics to figure out who to mate with who. And fish are, again, a fun topic of mine. I like, I like talking about fish, but really what I like talking about are ducks. And so that led me to a PhD in, uh, at Wright State University in Ohio, where I uh, started down the path of waterfowl genetics uh, with a specific focus on mallard genetics, uh, mallard-like ducks. And so I've been working on mallard-like ducks for the last, I don't know, over a decade now. Uh, in between that, I've worked on everything, as I say, uh, that's got uh, DNA and money. So I'll work on pretty much everything with that. Um, uh, I, I did a couple postdocs for USGS, Fish and Wildlife, um, Smithsonian, and uh, landed here at the University of Texas, El Paso in 2016, where I opened up a wildlife genetics laboratory. And so we study um, the evolution, uh, but how, but more importantly, how to take what we find in the evolutionary context and apply it for conservation and management of species. Uh, and again, with that focus on waterfowl and more specifically on mallards and mallard-like ducks. And so that is how I got to where I am right now. And here we are talking on the podcast about it. Very cool. Thanks for sharing that. Phil, uh, and it's it, it's good to <clears throat> good to have you here. I think my first question to get into this topic, we're going to be spending a, a great deal of time talking about genetics. Obviously, as you've that's your your specialty. My first question is going to go to Tom. And so, Tom, you and I have been in the waterfowl field for a number of years. Uh, you longer than I, but every step along that way, we have occasionally heard and seen about and been part of discussions related to genetics in waterfowl management, population management. Most commonly, it is, as Phil has talked about, in the realm of, of mallards. And, and certainly at the, at the height of everything in the 80s and maybe early 90s, it was centered around black ducks and black duck hybridization with mallards. And so at the most basic level f for our listeners, um, help, help us understand why our why it's important for us as waterfowl managers to worry about, to try to understand genetics uh, and the hybridization as it relates to those genetic processes uh, in waterfowl and our waterfowl management um, processes. You know, fundamentally, wildlife management in general and waterfowl management in particular really are focused on sustaining populations. And populations consist, of course, of large numbers of individuals. If you, if you dive into that and take a deep look, then some of the characteristics of individuals that drive populations upward or downward ultimately relate to their adaptations. And those are basically a, a result of lengthy periods of natural selection. Uh, folks may be familiar with that term um, in ecological or evolutionary biology. And so these selective pressures over usually thousands of years, millennia, result in these, these species that comprise a population and they have these unique adaptations that make them uniquely suited to the habitats that they occupy. 
And so while we're interested in sustaining a population, we know that we have to sustain the habitat that the population requires and all of the related sort of natural resources and functions within that to enable, uh, in this case, waterfowl life history adaptations to ensure that the population trajectory overall stays, if not on a a an increasing slope, at least a stable or sustained flat, uh, flat slope. And that would mean that we have a population that is basically in balance and, and or we have an increasing population. And in either case, we can safely offer uh, hunters and others opportunities to take some individuals out of that population. Phil, I know you have taught genetics for a number of years now. Again, it's your specialty. Kind of building on what Tom is, has said there or adding to that, when kind of genetics 101, the intersection of genetics and, and natural resources conservation, how do you explain it to your students or to just people at large as to why this is important? Kind of building off what Tom said. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I uh, actually was just thinking about this one slide that I show all of my class of uh, both in population genetics, evolution, uh, ornithology, and waterfowl ecology that I teach. Um, and it basically says, look, genetics, what genetics tells you is, is actually identifying what you're really working with. In the evolutionary context, I want to know, you know, what makes this uh, population unique, right? So what are the genes that are driving adaptation? In the conservation aspect, spinning that idea, it's why, you know, what is it about that population that is unique so we can conserve it? So by understanding a population's genetics and associating that to, to, the, to whatever variables we're looking at, uh, whether it's strictly habitat, strictly mate choice, whatever it might be, um, by being able to understand that, uh, you can, you, that's how you can actually conserve a, a species or a population. And that getting to that, so where, where, where this is all lying is that genetics is really the only thing, in my opinion, in this world that doesn't actually lie. You could have, and where I come with that is you could have, let's say, two types of snakes. They mimic each other. They look identical, but one is poisonous and one is just mimicking. If you didn't know the genetics, you might have said, well, there must be sister species, same population, different population, maybe something else. And so they're cryptic. And there's lots and lots of that diversity that's cryptic that cannot be found until we look at the genes and the genetics of these things and be like, wait a minute, there's something very fundamentally different about them. And once you do that, then you can start to ask the more appropriate questions of, well, okay, so these things are different. Why are they different? How are they different? And how can we better conserve them? So genetics in some way is how we fact check nature. Is that what you're saying? That is exactly what I'm saying. So at least fact check what we think uh, it is. I mean, nature, nature already figured it out. We, we're just trying to catch up. Well, kind of to that point, genetics to the, to the average person, to the average waterfowl hunter or the average birder, and, and maybe the average person in natural resources, one of the places where genetics is going to be kind of most prominent in a conversation or our realization of genetics is going to be when we see hybrids. Hybrids, uh, which is, you know, that we have, you have two individuals, have an individual, two different species um, that will breed together and then their offspring or, of course, hybrid. I'm going to get you to 
offer a much better definition of this, but in waterfowl, hybrids are very common. And that's probably most hunters have seen pictures of them. A lot of hunters have actually harvested hybrids themselves. But just talk about that, about hybridization in waterfowl in general. First, I'll take you to like mammal versus, versus bird uh, or avis. Uh, so, so birds in general have a much higher rate of hybridization. I'll get to why that, that is than mammals. Um, so, so that being said, the other thing is that almost all bird complexes within that, the, a group of, a group of species within the same genus, let's say, you know, within the same group can almost always hybridize. And especially if you put them in captivity and play the right song, they'll always be able to hybridize. And why is that? So birds, although one of the oldest lineages uh, alive, have maintained very small genomes and very conserved genomes. And so the capacity to interbreed between, between distantly related groups or organisms have, uh, have been maintained. On top of it, these things can move really readily. They can fly around, obviously. They can find different mates. They can go to the wrong place and be like, uh-oh, well, I guess this thing kind of looks like me, so I might as well mate. And this has been actually an adaptive advantage, like where new species are able to integrate themselves into different places because of hybridization. What I want to make clear about the, the difference between hybridization and, and gene flow before we keep going is that hybridization is simply the intermixing between two distinct lineages. So again, you can, you, uh, a mule is still a hybrid between a horse and a donkey, but that mule cannot actually breed. It's sterile. So the hybrid, hybridization does create a hybrid, but that hybrid is sterile. For gene flow, where the movement of genes from population one into population two, for that to occur, that hybrid has to actually be fit enough, be not be sterile, and be able to breed, successfully breed to some extent with their parental populations. And that way, you can think of it as the hybrid or the mule, if it wasn't sterile, as this combinate gene combination that is the vessel that moves genes from one species to the other. So that's gene flow. And we'll get to some, some, some ideas about why that, why it gene, how gene flow can be good or bad or, you know, in the middle, basically nothing. Um, but to your point of our, our waterfowl, one of the most, uh, show some of the highest rates of hybridization. Yes, they do. And in fact, even the waterfowl within the bird, within Avis, within all birds, is one of the oldest lineages themselves. Uh, you can have hybrid pairs between very distinct uh, lineages. You can have wood duck mallard, right? We've seen those, uh, mallard pintail, mallard teal, mallard widgeon, mallard gaddle. I mean, basically mallard in anything. Um, and so, and the same thing when the goose families, right? All, all of the geese can pretty much, uh, there's been either hybrids in the wild or hybrids in captivity. Uh, I mean, once you put these things in captivity, I mean, almost all of them can interbreed, even though they're very, very distinct lineages. And that's because they've conserved, they maintain such conservancy in, across their genome that their genomes can still, when, when mixed, can still make uh, to some extent, viable offspring. I mean, enough so that Gadwell and Mallard is a brewer's duck. I mean, we have names for some of these hybrids because of how many there were, there are, were of these things. And so to get to a number, 
almost 60% of all waterfowl can produce viable hybrids. And that is a large amount of, uh, of hybridization that can occur between very distinct lineages. So the first thing to kind of myth busting, we might say that we're going to do here is that at least in, in waterfowl, uh, these hybrids are not sterile as a general rule. So how does this, how does this happen? How do two species, two different species mate with one another? Are they making a mistake? Are they just, uh, is it an overly aggressive male? What's, what's driving that? What's going on there? So there's, there's a lot that it could be a, kind of like multiple scenarios, right? It could be that it's a mistake. Female chooses wrong. Often what we consider is what, what's occurring is that a lot of the incorrect mate pairings occur when a female uh, loses her first nest, tries to uh, re-nest uh, during her re-nest attempt and whatever's around attempts to uh, obtain extra pair copulation or something or, or an additional, <laughs> an additional copulation and uh, and voila, you have a hybrid uh, uh, hybridization event that occurs. That's the majority of time because in wintering grounds, the females are probably all choosing correctly. Uh, and so we believe, we think that the majority of hybridization events occurs as extra pair copulation, probably uh, during uh, nest failures by the hens. And so this kind of secondary wave of, of, of mate events. How much do we know about uh, about the breeding choices of those of those hybrid individuals, the F one hybrids? Let's just say the the very first offspring. Do we have? I mean, I would imagine outside of captivity, they're almost impossible to study because they're so rare. But what have we learned from captivity with respect to their preference for uh, for a mate? So the only real good waterfowl captive studies I, I know of. Uh, one was done with black ducks and mallards. The other one was done in whole, with Hawaiian ducks, but it wasn't so much of a choice as much as like people mating the individuals they thought were pure and seeing what happens. Um, the, the, the only real good study, uh, done or somewhat done, uh, was that they kind of found that black duck females, uh, chose, you know, quote unquote, uh, big, Male mallards had a preference for them. It seemed could also be just overly aggressive males. Uh, but but um, outside of that, I can't think of a good captive breeding study where they allowed for for and studied mate choice uh, to date. I don't know, Tom. Do you have something? No, not really in captivity. Um, you know, a couple things. Um, following up first on how hybrids occur. Um, and you, you correctly mentioned that typically it's probably a function of re-nesting females. For, for listeners who maybe have never been to the prairies, understand that when pairs get there, same species pairs, the first nest is attempted and the pair bond breaks down pretty quickly when incubation starts. And what you see, had we been on the prairies in, say, some year in sort of late May into June, you see a lot of bachelor groups standing around, which are males who either were more paired and have mated or surplus unpaired males. So when a female loses a nest and she comes into the pond, there's a whole bunch of aggressive males sitting around. And if she happens to be a female gadwall and there's a big group of male mallards around, there's a fair chance that some brewer's ducks, hybrid gadwall mallards, could be produced. Let's take that same brewer's duck 
and understand that pairing and breeding behavior, the actual courtship cues in waterfowl are actually pretty complex. And I, I guess I'd sort of characterize it as waterfowl are a group of birds that are maybe earlier in speciation. And so those behavioral cues, such as on a gadwall, the white wing patch, and some unique behaviors, grunt whistles, uh, purple iridescence that might attract females to a drake gadwall. So you get this drake or female gadwall out there or hybrid out there, and she's probably a little foggy on which set of cues to choose from. Will she choose a mallard or will she choose a gadwall? Maybe, and we don't know because like you said, the frequency of this is fairly low. Maybe they're so confused they don't breed or nest successfully. We don't really know, but what we probably, and, and maybe Phil can speak to this, but I can't really say that I, I know of any evidence out there that where a, a hybrid has subsequently resulted in perpetuation and a brood and, and or some other exotic looking bird that's really mixed. And maybe so we'll, we'll speak to that a little bit later. That hit it pretty well. You're right. I mean, so so on top of that, at least the genetic standpoint, uh, what we find is that yeah, in most species, what happens is that you might find some F1s, these first generation hybrids that we like the brewer's duck. That's actually a first generation hybrid. But typically, it's hard to find backcrosses, meaning that those individuals breed back into one, one or both of the populations that it came from. In that case, breeding into the mallard or breeding that hybrid breeding with a mallard or that hybrid breeding with a gadwall. And so that really does say, suggest that what, what we consider as pre-zygotic or pre-mating isolation is a really strong and important facet for waterfowl. And like Tom mentioned, all of those nuances in, in their dance, song, and plumage are really important key aspects that, that females are using to ensure not only are they getting, you know, the gen genetically most fit male that they, or they, uh, that they, they can presume is most fit, but also that they're picking correctly as far as the species themselves, right? So a lot of these things are in mixed flocks. You've got pintail, teal, gadwell, mallards, and all kinds of stuff all together. They, but they somehow, you know, not at least 99% of the time pick correctly and identify their, their own kind, uh, correctly each time. And so those cues, uh, in a hybrid, if you think of a hybrid and a brewer's duck, are, he's not going to look like a mallard and he's not going to look like a gadwall. So that's an important way that a female is going to be like, wait, something is up with you. And that basically that hybrid or that previous breeding event that created a bunch of brewer's duck is a dead end, biologically a dead end. Uh, most of the time is what we, is what we find. Now we're going to talk about black ducks and mallards and other things of that nature where Sometimes that just doesn't hold, uh, hold weight and things break down pretty quickly. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlantSport.com.
the conversation we're having right now is sort of setting the backdrop, establishing some foundational understanding of genetics and hybridization for some the future aspects, additional aspects of this conversation. And we are eventually, probably not until the third episode, going to get into a discussion about eastern mallards and what we've learned, what you and your, your colleagues and students have learned with respect to eastern mallard genetics and some really insightful um, findings there, which incidentally, this is a good place for me to remind our listeners that um, this discussion ties in closely with an article that Phil recently wrote for the Ducks Unlimited magazine. I think it came out in um, – it may have been the spring or summer uh, issue of the Ducks Unlimited magazine in 2020. So I certainly encourage people to look that up, read that article. There's actually several links if you go to the web-based article. Uh, and it may have actually even mentioned – provided a web link or a web address in the written article where you can go and download some of the actual actual peer-reviewed literature that resulted from the research that Phil and his students students and colleagues have conducted. So you can really dig into the details of those studies and, and those findings if you if you want to. But, but this entire conversation kind of um, does link back to that to that article that was in the DU magazine. Uh, so let's transition now to start talking about some of your research, Phil, with this kind of in, entertaining discussion of, of hybridization and, uh, and basic genetics behind us. Uh, a lot of your work, as you talked about in the introduction, has centered around what is known as the Mallard complex. Explain to us what that is uh, and give us an idea of why the study of genetics and hybridization has been of such great interest within that group of species. Yeah. So, I mean, clearly that uh, the fact that it's a mallard, everybody wants to know something about the mallard. So the fun fact about mallards is thankfully, every time there's been like a genetic revolution in technique or something like that, it's been applied to the to mallards and particularly mallards, American black ducks, model ducks, uh, both West Gulf Coast and Florida and so forth. And so it, it, going all the way back to the 80s, they would apply these things being like, okay, uh, let's take a look at mallards and black ducks and see how different they are or how the same they are. For a long time, because we really only had just a few markers, every study was largely inconclusive or potentially concluding that black ducks and mallards are, are just the same thing and, 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 and hybridization was just this widespread uh, event that and essentially there's no more black ducks out there. And this idea or dogma uh, perpetuated, I mean, well into my own uh, waterfowl ecology course at UC Davis. And and I was under the same guise that, that, hey, black ducks are extinct from hybridization, but potentially we could learn a few things here and there about, about those things, about them, if we continue to add more data. So as I got into it, I had the same kind of notion. I wanted to first uh, the first thing I wanted to do was build a good phylogenetic tree and look at patterns. So phylogenetic tree is really just taking some genes among a, a few individuals of every species. In this case, I did all 13 or 14 mallard-like ducks. If the listeners don't know this, the mallard complex is a complex of mallard-like ducks that are found all around the world. There's about 13 or 14 of them, depending on the taxonomic organization that you that you listen to. And they, what we call this is, is a radiation or uh, successful radiation. And it's because we have mallard-like ducks that are uniquely found in uh, several in Africa, a couple in Eurasia, several, uh, one in the Philippines, one, uh, uh, several across the Australasian Pacific, including Laysan and Hawaii. And of course, here in North America, we've got the Mexican duck, 
to uh, the West Gulf Coast model duck, the Florida model duck, American block duck, and, and the mallard. And the mallard itself ha- is the only one is, that's actually found pretty much around the globe at this point. But it has this whole Arctic distribution naturally that it has uh, the mallard population is essentially uh, can be found for, uh, across Eurasia and across North America. And it's a, this kind of single population. So you've got these unique organisms everywhere. And so what I, what I intended to do was use the newest and greatest genetic techniques. We, we, we built these phylogenetic relationships or, uh, and looking at patterns. And from there, we started to see interesting patterns, uh, across the board. And that's where I started to dive further and further in, in the, in this new world mallard complex or the brown ducks and the mallard of, of North America. Thankfully, in 2012, they're right in the midst of my PhD. Um, this new technique came out. It was called DDRADSEQ. Uh, double digest restriction associated uh, sequencing method. Um, and what this allowed you to do is if you had DNA from any organism, you could cut it up and sequence it in a very specific way where you get thousands of markers all at once without having to go through the painful experiences of genetics of, of the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. And this really has revolutionized not only you know what I've been able to learn, but really what everybody who's studying wildlife genetics has been able to do, and that's looking at population level data for thousands of markers to answer, really concretely answer some questions about, okay, if it's hybridization, you know, where are the hybrids? Where are the backrosses? What percent are they in different areas in, in, in their region and so forth? So, so that's when I was able to apply these methods. I was able to gather the, those techniques and apply them. And for, for the mallards and, and all of the North American mallard like ducks, uh, at this point, we were, we were going with 50 plus and usually in the 100 to 200 sample data set for almost 4,000 loci. This is a big data set. And finally, what, what, what we were able to get was good kind of we were able to get good 23 and me answers, right? So that's basically what I do. I take this genetic information and I say, what's your 23 and me duck? And, uh, and, and lo and behold, all of a sudden, all of the species that no one else has been able to, all of the different varieties of mallard that nobody else was able to really partition and, and can actually say something about hybridization. I was able to finally see the different populations. I was, I'm, I was able to actually differentiate between American black ducks and mallards and model ducks and Mexican ducks. They were all right there. And more importantly, I can actually start to find real hybrids, not individuals that you think are hybrids, but real genetic hybrids. And that was the turning point of what, of the story of that were, that, that was the moment that we were able to start to ask important questions about hybridization rates, uh, not only in the species, but also geographically, because we started getting these hundred bird data sets across geography. And that's when we were able to get good, answer some really core questions about hybridization. Now, does that technique also allow you to answer the, some of the persistent questions that the waterfowl community had faced with respect to which group of birds is a distinct species and which groups of birds or which species are most closely related to the others? This idea of kind of the ancestry and the 23 and me type thing it allows you to do that as well, right? 
Yes. Yeah. So that was the important thing is that that's when we started to actually be able to confidently not only assign individuals to populations, but also then because we knew what they were, actually look at the ancestry among the different species of ducks. And so, yeah, absolutely. This is when we were, this was a turning point because before really, I mean, heck, halfway through my own uh, PhD dissertation, when we were doing, you know, the big data set of 20 loci, a mallard, American black duck and a Mexican duck were identical. I couldn't identify between them. Uh, I couldn't, and thus I could not identify hybrids. And so really I was, under under the you know guise of whatever uh, a professional U.S. Fish and Wildlife folks said, hey, this wing bee is a wing bee bird is a is a Mexican duck, and so I had to say, okay, I guess that's a Mexican duck. But now I can concretely identify individuals to pure parental hybrids and so forth, and make more make better inferences from my analyses by excluding hybrids. Let's say when I'm trying to ask questions about really about the history of black ducks and mallards, let's say. That has been one of the, at least in, in my time in this profession, has been one of the most debated topics. That And, and I, I think the, we began to develop a general understanding uh, agreement on what the case was. But with respect to, you know, we're in North America, we have these four different species, you might say four or, or five. Yeah, I guess it would be four that are mallard-like, you know, model duck, Mexican duck, American black duck, and, and then the mallard. And then the question was, well, which is, the, which is the, the ancestor? Which came here first? And then how did these other species radiate out from that? So what is the, our latest understanding from, from your research on, on that particular thing? Which, which came here first and led to the, the uh, speciation of the others? Uh, a velociraptor. No. Um, <laughs> that would be fun. I, I swear, a mallard's probably a velociraptor. No. Um, all right. So, so there are these, so I have to, I have to backtrack that a bit. So there are these two hypotheses for, for how mallards and mallard like ducks got to North America and so forth. And these two hypotheses completely surrounded by the fact of, you know, of hybridization. I'll get to why that is. So the first hypothesis is that a brown duck at some point in the past came to North America and kind of adapted to these different niche spaces, right? The boreal forests of the east, Florida Everglades, uh, West Gulf Coast, and obviously the Chihuahuan Desert for the Mexican duck. And then at some point later on, the Eurasian mallard came and and hybridized a whole bunch. And there were, there was, it was so much hybridization that today, why those debates even came about is, is, is from why do brown ducks in North America have so much mallard genetics in them? And the assumption was always that it was hybridization. Okay. So, so under that, that theory or an alternative theory was that, wait a minute, it might not be hybridization. It might just simply be ancestry. And under that hypothesis, it would be that a mallard came to North America, uh, kind of uh, spread across North America. So you just had one big, giant, green head population. I'm sure, th- I'm sure everybody in North America would have loved that. Um, but then what happened through, as, as isolation occurred between these, let's say, rem- these, popula- these kind of isolated population, isolating populations of mallards, right? So let's say the glacier came down, uh, uh, right down the middle of North America, isolating, let's say the prairie pothole mallard from the Eastern, uh, at that time mallard. And so what happened is that that Eastern mallard 
no longer was under the same uh, uh, selective uh, pressures as a prairie pothole bird, but more so as a bird that is now living in the boreal forest that is being that is that is that is growing in that area as that glacier recedes. On top of that, you would think mallards that got isolated in Florida, West Gulf Coast, and the Chihuahuan Desert, all three, should I say, are refugia during the last glacial maxima for other species, would have been isolated in a very distinct environment from the prairie pothole, from the ancestral prairie pothole mallard. Glaciers recede. Voila, there was isolation between these four, these distinct populations of mallards. And because they're under different selective regimes now, that green head was no longer needed uh, uh, due to other factors, let's say, and maybe we can get into them. And what, what evolved, what the green head e- sort of evolved into on the East Coast would be the American black duck. The, in, the Flo- in Florida Everglades and the West Gulf Coast, what we consider the model duck, and obviously in the Chihuahuan Desert, what we consider the Mexican duck. And the between, so there are the, so those are those two, these have been the two hypotheses that have been uh, suggested through time, right? Um, and again, the, the very fundamental difference between those two hypotheses is the first hypothesis uh, assumes a ton of hybridization for them to have a bunch of the same ancestry. So the brown ducks having a bunch of mallard and the mallard having a bunch of a brown duck in it. The second one simply is that it was an ancestry effect. And because they diverged pretty recently, uh, a lot of that mallard's still floating around in these populations. So you asked, what does the data support? So in 2019, we published a paper in molecular ecology where we asked that exact question. Not only were we saying, okay, if it's the first hypothesis, this uh, brown duck coming in, mallard coming in, and lots of hybridization, we should not only find uh, these signatures of ancestral hybridization events, so there are these distinct ways to, to, to tease that apart, but also that we should be, be able to readily find hybrids out in the landscape, genetic hybrids, real hybrids, not just phenotypic things that people think that are hybrids, but real hybrids. And alternatively, if it's a scenario two, where it's just the mallard coming in, exploding in North America, uh, then, you know, through various uh, situations of isolation, voila, we have our brown ducks. You would think that it's, I don't find a lot of hybrids. Ancestry is really the, the true signature that, that uh, explains the, the shared variation. And to, to get to the punchline, it's the second one. What all of our data in that paper and the upcoming papers are really coming is saying that it really does suggest that the mallard was likely the ancestor rather than interbreeder of, uh, in North America and that, and that the Mexican duck, the model ducks and the American black duck are, uh, adaptive populations, uh, of once of what was once a mallard species. So the nickname of King Mallard really does ring true then, is what you're saying. Uh, at least, I guess at least in North America. <laughs> <laughs> Anything to add to that, Tom? No, other than, you know, the speciation events in North America have some some interesting parallels because there are also, I don't know, Phil probably knows exactly, there's probably another eight or nine species of mallard-like ducks around the globe. Some are endemic to certain islands. Uh, some are endemic to Africa. And their origination 
could also be mallard based. No, that's the uniqueness in North America is that North America has a very specific signature that is mallard based that none of the others have. So in fact, in fact, the mallard itself, that green head evolved from what was most likely an, an African black duck ancestor. And that is what our phylogenetics show is that the African species was the, are the ancestors to all the mallard like ducks. So both yellow billed duck, African black duck and mallard's duck. We don't know. Probably some, some extinct ancestor of those three was actually the true ancestor to all mallard like ducks. But what we do know is that the mallard likely evolved somewhere in Eurasia, let's say Moscow. And, uh, it, but it evolved, it evolved from, from a brown duck. So, so this is a scenario and this is not a unique scenario for, for birds. There's been other, there's been plenty of other studies where you've got a monochromatic species, meaning that the males and the females look the same. In this case, brown ducks. There's a sister species that all of a sudden evolves a dichromatic, a dichromatic sister species all of a sudden evolves. And that means the males and females look differently, usually the males being brightly colored. And then in, in later cases, there was additional loss of that dichromatism because of, sele- you know, that selection was just not there. And so what this appears to be a case, and again, you know, maybe, maybe in another decade, some PhD student is going to come to me and said, you're wrong. But at least today, the, the data does suggest that the mallard evolved in Eurasia somewhere. So that green had evolved. At some point, all a bunch of Eurasian mallards came over to North America, got cut off from Eurasia. So now they're these kind of two distinct sort of mallard populations at that time. And then within North America, they get further cut off by glacier events and perpetuated the, the evolution of today's American black duck, model ducks, and Mexican duck through the loss of that green head. Does that make sense? And this is why we bring experts on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And this is, and the beauty is that, so I, like, like Tom was saying, is that I work on all of them. So I have the same genetic information to compare, let's say, against Pacific black ducks, New Zealand gray ducks, yellow bill ducks, uh, spot bill ducks. I only have the Chinese because I can't for the life of me get an Indian spot bill duck out of India but a Chinese spot-billed duck, and I can have these comparisons. And, and what we find in North America is very distinct from, from the rest of them. The rest of them are really truly that what appears to have happened is there's this almost simultaneous split of a brown duck going north to Eurasia from Africa and a brown duck going to the, to the Austral, Australasian Pacific. So, the, so Australia, New Zealand, and the Pacific Islands there eventually evolving into what we consider today as a Pacific black duck and gray duck, Philippine duck as well. But they have a very distinct like uh, uh, allopatric, you know, just isolation scenario where their genetic diversity makes sense based on population size. The most important thing about North America that is superiorly unique compared to other organisms, and it, it makes it unique, is that Let's say the census size of Florida model duck is 130,000, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe it's less. Gulf Coast is what, 250, 250,000? Mexican duck, they estimate at 50,000, but that's completely wrong. But what's unique about it is they have the genetic diversity of a mallard, which is at 12 million. And the only way for you to have that diversity is you, A, either interbred with something that's got all that diversity. So now your kids have more diversity than you should. Or B, it's ancestry. 
And if it was A, there would be hybrids running around, genetic hybrids running around everywhere. And there simply aren't. And we could get to that in, in a moment here about what, what we thought was happening to what really is happening. I feel like I need to apologize to the listeners for being complicit in exploding their brain with all of this information. Uh, <laughs> wonderful information <laughs> at that. But uh, if you feel you need an Excedrin, drop me an email and, and I'll, uh, I'll send one your way. Maybe too late by the time it gets there. But nevertheless, great information, Phil. I, I think we're at a point where we can wrap up episode one. We've touched on hybridization at kind of a basic level. We've talked about the Mallard complex. We've talked about Mallard ancestry as we understand it today uh, and demonstrated that our understanding today has has evolved from where it was 15, 20, and maybe even more recent uh, a few years ago because of some of the advancement in, in the genetic uh, methods and genetic analyses that Phil has spoken about. So uh, great information, always a fascinating topic among the waterfowl enthusiasts when you realize how closely just from appearance some of these Mallard-like ducks really are and it makes you just instinctively question, well, what is the relatedness of those species? And so thanks for the work that Phil is doing. We're, we're really starting to piece that together at a, at a whole new level. Phil, Tom, thank you for joining us, joining us here on this one. And we are going to have you back for episodes two and then three. So thank you guys. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Look forward to it. We extend a special thanks to our guests on today's show, Dr. Phil Lavretsky and Dr. Tom Mormon. We appreciate their time and expertise on this very interesting and intriguing topic. And we also thank our producer, C.B. Clay Baird, the great, for the great work that he does in editing these podcasts. And of course, to you, the listeners, as always, we thank you for support, passion, and commitment for wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. <laughs>